0: We continue our series in Mark. This morning we'll be in chapter 2, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 6. If you're taking notes, you can do so on the back of your bulletin there. Beginning in Mark 2, remember we uh, titled it, uh, last time, we saw that the gospel brings rest, but we don't see that till we uh, get into the end of chapter 2, and the beginning of chapter 3, but the gospel brings rest, yet here, it's filled with all sorts of conflict, conflict in this particular chapter, chapter. And so, over the top of verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 6, we're saying, we see here that the gospel standard creates conflict. Jesus' ministry was filled with conflict. Let's read as the conflict intensifies, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 2. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? And they're talking to Jesus. Jesus said, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But a time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, "'Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath?' And he said to them, "'Have you read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar and the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest? And he also gave some to his companions.' Then he told them the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So then the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus entered the synagogue again and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched stretched it out and his hand was restored. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we look here at this text and it will be easy for us to, uh, to think of the Pharisees and scribes as represented in this section uh, as having nothing to do with us. And so we ask that your spirit would help that we might draw close to you through this text as you intend and that we would be able to see the areas in our life that are more consistent with those who are antagonistic to you in this text, as opposed to those who that receive and are filled. And Guide us, we pray in this time together in Jesus' name, Amen. So we're seeing Jesus' ministry. We're in chapter two here, and it's filled with conflict, right? Uh, this section here details the escalation of Jesus's conflict with the religious establishment of his time. The Pharisees, who were religious leaders of the people, became fixated on the external life as opposed to the internal life, right? They measured themselves according to external factors as opposed to internal. They told people, hey, because they're the religious leaders, so naturally they would share with people and tell people, this is what it looks like to be close to God. These Pharisees and scribes, right? This is what it looks like to honor God, to follow God. And then they looked down on others who were not following God according to the prim- principles that they had gathered from the scripture. They had all these boxes checked to say, here is what godliness looks like, and they compared themselves to people who couldn't check those boxes, and they concluded, right, as we saw just several weeks back, I'm sure glad I'm not like them. Right, and these principles they used to guide, that they used to guide their life, were found where, in the law, right, and came from traditions they established in response to the law. So they thought they were in pretty good standing because they're gathering these things from the word of the Lord, and so we have like things like scriptural disciplines of fasting. And the law of keeping the Sabbath, as we see here in our text, beginning in verse 18. right? These two two points specifically we're going to discuss this morning. And we see how uh, their misunderstanding or their unbelief created intense conflict and why it did. The first point that we see, if you're taking notes there on the back of your bulletin, is that the law superseded by the promise. And we look there beginning in verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees, it says we're fasting. People came and asked him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Right? Now, if we look next at Jesus' answer in the next verse, okay, we see there, Jesus said, the wedding guest, and right there we stop, and Jesus answers the question of fasting by turning to this picture of marriage, right? And the Pharisees would understand immediately, which is why he kind of rhetorically asked the question at the end of verse, or at the middle of verse 19 there, right? He knows that they know the answer, right? The Pharisees understood how marriage was a parallel to Israel's relationship to the Lord, now, from a New Testament perspective, we, we, we uh, sometimes just think of it in terms of Christ, right? And how how the church and, and Christ's relationship with the church is a picture of our relationships in our homes, and our marriage. We even talked about that last week a little bit, right? But the Pharisees and the Israelite, the Jews, would have understood that their marriage is a parallel to their relationship with the Lord. They would have known passages such as Isaiah 54, verse 5. If you want to turn there, you can. I'll read it to you. It states this, and they would have known this, and it's important, I think, as Jesus turns their attention to this, to this idea of a marriage and the celebration that is to take place and who's the groom. It says there in Isaiah 54, verse 5, indeed, your husband is your maker. His name is the Lord of armies, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of the whole earth, for the Lord has called you, how? It says there, like a wife, deserted and wounded in spirit. See, Jehovah, they understood, and we can point to other texts, but they understood Jehovah was their groom. That is the Jews and the The Pharisees and the the leaders that Jesus is talking to, they understood that Jehovah was their groom. So it's important as we just begin right there in Jesus' response looking that we understand that, right? They saw that as Jehovah being their groom, that they belonged to him. And their fasting, which they did, was certainly, okay, supposed to be a reminder And a discipline to help them stay faithful and focused. I'm talking about the religious establishment, the Pharisees, the leaders. Right? This fasting was supposed to be a, a reminder and a discipline for them. To stay faithful and focused. Not a bad thing, right? For often, why? They had been unfaithful. They needed to do that, didn't they? When it comes to marriage, think of all the parallels in the Old Testament. Think of the prophet Hosea. Go home and read it this weekend, right? Often what we see is that Israel had been unfaithful and adulterous, right? They ran after other lovers. And so surely their fasting was to remind them that they had one love, Jehovah, right? And he could not be replaced, right? And so their fleshly appetites, like our fleshly appetites, would tempt them to be unfaithful. Especially when their husband appeared quiet and absent, as Jehovah sometimes felt, right? To them. I mean, even if you think of before the time of Christ, we have like 400 years of of silence, Right? And so they must starve themselves, right, in this sense, through fasting. They wanted to starve their appetites. Why? To refocus and remember their husband, their groom, Jehovah, right? Here's the problem, though, is that the the law and their religious practices had become an end, and we're going to keep looking at this. There's a lot to say, and Mark will keep saying it, but the law and their religious practices had become an end in themselves, okay? And it did not stir them toward deeper love with God. That's what it was supposed to do. It was supposed to stir them. That's what the spiritual disciplines, the law, is supposed to do, right? It's supposed to bring us into a deeper relationship with God. Actually, the law, in that sense, is is, uh, uh, God's gracious provision, okay? But it didn't do this for them. Uh, their identifying as people of God was superficial, even in this thing with fasting. Right? We could say if you study it and you look at it and elsewhere when Jesus speaks to it, like their fasting was fake. Right? Pharisees would do stuff to make it look like they were they were struggling, or fasting. Oh, you know, whitening their faces put ashes on their head, wore clothes, their clothes sloppy, refused to wash, and they just tried to look as slowly and pious. By pious, I mean righteous as possible. Look at all the suffering we're doing for the Lord and not eating today or tomorrow, right? And so they're identified as God's people, but it was to do what? Not to point to God, not to draw them to God, but to point to themselves. Take a look at us. Right? Here Jesus sets the Pharisees' minds on fire, okay, by identifying himself as the groom. So that's where it turns sour. Okay? Because who do they think the groom was? Jehovah. Right? Right? They would have seen God as their groom. The groom they claim to fast for, though, is now present in who? Jesus. Right? And he is revealing his identity to these guys by referring to himself as the bridegroom. Jesus is signaling to them, not very discreetly, discreetly but that he is God. Right? And he is saying there, as we read there in the text, my disciples don't fast because I'm the bridegroom. And I am present. And when the bridegroom is present, it's time to enjoy and celebrate while he's here. Okay? Right? You, you don't go to a wedding feast and fast. Right? If it worked out like that, it was an accident. Right? Like, <laughs> and you might suspend your fast. Okay? Right? You go to a wedding feast to party. I love, wed- I love getting invited to weddings. But not the real quick ones. You know? That's always, no offense, right, for those that have invited me to a wedding and you didn't have a big party afterwards with lots of food and stuff, but boy, those are fun. That's the one I want to be invited to, right? They're dancing, right? There's partying going on. The bride is not fasting, is she? Right? The biggest partiers of the feast, actually, are who? The bride and the groom, I would hope, right? They're dancing and shoving cake in each other's faces. At least that's how we do it here, right? Right? Some of you are too cool for that. But, right, That's great. I love it. It's fun. They're living it up. right? If they, what Jesus is saying there, if they knew who Jesus was, what would they do? They would feast, not fast, because he's right there with them. My goodness. That's what he's saying. And so here, it displays their unbelief, doesn't it? Their unbelief is evident. And the shallowness of their religious practices is revealed. Right? Oh, we're fasting for the Lord. we're fasting for the bridegroom. We're fa- No, you're not. As if you were, you would stop because you'd see them right in front of you and you'd be partying, right? But they didn't. The law is superseded by the presence of the promise. The old standard practices aren't relevant any longer, and it was freaking them out. And we see there in verse 20, Jesus says something. That likely not even his disciples understood. he references the cross. Look there, verse 20, it says, But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. Have you ever been to a wedding where everyone is enjoying themselves, right? And you are so happy for the bride because you really believe like she is going to be happy with this particular groom, okay? This groom is the perfect man for this bride. He is strong and yet tender. He is understanding. And you see all these, and and you're just there, and like, man, this is just, because sometimes, right, just to be honest, like I know people were at my, she's not here, people were at my, you know, wedding, and they were going, oh, that poor girl, oh, you know, like some people didn't celebrate with us, because they're over there, they're like praying during the celebration, you know, and praise God they were. Right? But but you know, the wedding I'm talking about where you're just like, man, this is a great setup, and you're just there and you're you're happy because you see this man is is gonna serve this woman, love this woman, he is strong, he is tender, he is understanding. Have you ever been at that wedding when everybody is on board? And and then let me add to that, you're there, and then all of the sudden, someone breaks in and forcibly removes the groom. Anybody ever been to a wedding like that? If you have, I'd like to hear the story. Okay? Right? Forcibly removes the groom. That's a foreign concept. Isn't it? You don't expect that to happen. That would be like a, a wedding crasher. Okay? Not to be confused with that movie. All right? It would be a wedding crasher. The bridegroom removed from the bride. Taken from his own wedding celebration. Right? This is verse 20. This is verse 20. And Jesus is speaking of himself as the groom that will be forcibly removed, betrayed, tortured, crucified, but also, not just that, also resurrected from the dead and ascend into heaven. Like all that's being said there in verse 20. The bridegroom will physically be present with them, but only for a short time. As verse 20 says there, look at, it at the end, he Once he is taken away, then they will have reason to fast. Okay? Then they will have reason. But not now. That's why my disciples don't fast. So that's Jesus' answer, right? And it's important, I think, too, to remember our audience. Remember Mark's audience. Mark is writing to Christians in Rome. And let me just tell you, they are missing the bridegroom. We just ask ourselves that question when we are suffering, when you're in a trial this morning, is that trial that you're in, is that valley that you're in, is that deep pit that you're in, does that got you just lamenting and missing the bridegroom? Does it? Or does it just have you... Wishing that that valley was just over, that trial was just, and I understand that, I get that, but I th- here we have Mark riding to Christians in Rome who are missing the bridegroom. They are anticipating the bridegroom's return, right? Nero is persecuting the church, right? And in the face of this, they must persevere. It's that discipleship under pressure. And Mark has a word for them here. As they are in that discipleship under pressure. This is the time of fasting. Right? Why? Because it helps us stay focused. It helps us stay faithful. It helps us persevere to the end. And to live for what really matters. Because of our victory and. Christ today yes we can celebrate and we feast even now and next week we will feast around the Lord's Supper that God has ordained right in anticipation of a wedding feast a supper that is coming the wedding supper of the Lamb right Our Lord's Supper anticipates that very celebration. So we do. We celebrate today. And we sing songs of joy and and hope and celebration and enthusiasm. And and we have this joy that that causes us to be resilient. We have this joy that has us rising sort of above the the difficulties that we face in this day. the, The trials and the difficult time. There's reason to celebrate today. But we also, church, ought to be fasting Because the final celebration is not yet with us. (laughs) Okay, we are yet in anticipation for a day that is coming. And I believe that we should. And if you don't, we have that class on disciplines in here. And we talked about fasting. And that's one of the spiritual disciplines. We we always talk about, you know, how there's a spiritual... Discipline of, of certainly gathering here on Sundays. There's a spiritual discipline of reading our Bibles. There's a spiritual discipline of prayer. Not very, there's a spiritual discipline of giving. But how often do we talk about the spiritual discipline of fasting? We fast because it reminds us, right? It reminds us of we, what we're really waiting for. What, what in our spirit we really ought to be hungering after. I don't know about you, but when I fast, it, it, it awakens that in me. Like, and I realize how, how much I desire the fleshly things, just a, a simple plate of food. When I'm abstaining from that, and it makes me aware of just how weak I am spiritually, and it reminds me all the more of how much I need Christ, of, of how much I'm anticipating His return. You see, regular fasting helps us remain alert and attentive for His return. Regular fasting helps us strive for holiness it reminds us of the importance of denying our fleshly appetites i encourage you church if you if you are not regularly fasting in the spiritual disciplines of your life to do it start this week the outward exercise of fasting was spiritually uh, though in this moment not necessary because jesus was present Right? One reason they didn't understand this was because of their unbelief about Jesus. But the other reason uh, which, re- which I think caused them to remain in their unbelief was their fasting was done with the wrong motives. And here we need to hear a word, right? We always need to hear a word about our motives. We always need to have our eye and God's word and his spirit. We need to submit our motives to the Lord, right? right? We don't fast to wear a badge of spiritual honor. Right, right. I had a a pastor. One he he was a uh, my youth pastor at at times, and uh, and he you know Jesus says elsewhere. Hey, when you fast, don't let anyone know, don't tell anyone. So he said, well, I'm not going to tell. I'm going to get a T-shirt that says I'm fasting and wear that. He was joking, okay, of course. But the idea is, it's like it's like Pharisaical, right? It's like okay, I'm not. I'm gonna. Even we as Christians, we come like, oh, you're not supposed to tell anyone. So I'm not going to let anybody know that this is my discipline. I'm going to have my prayer time in the closet that I'm not going to shout about and tell everybody about. But then we have our ways of like letting people know and carefully sewing our spiritual badge. Is that just me? Or do you guys fall into that category? Right? This is where it's like, Lord, help us see, right? Help us see what you have for us, right? We don't. We don't wear these things as uh, to say, "Oh, we're of the committed group of Christians. We're the serious followers." It's not why we pray. It's not why we give. It's not why we read our Bibles, uh, right? It's not why we submit ourselves to the church. It's not why we endure suffering. It's not why we watch our behavior. It's not why we watch our doctrine. None of this is motivated by a look of look at me. Right? Or look, it's motivated by our what? Our love for the bridegroom. Right? It's motivated. These things in our life that we would do, that we would fast, that we would pray, that we would get on our knees regularly before the Lord, that we would submit ourselves to the Word, it's motivated because of our love and anticipation of our bridegroom's return. It's motivated because we got married and said our I do's. And not to her, but to him. Amen. That's what is motivated. That's why you're here this morning. We're here to sing and shout because we said our I do's. And boy, that buoy's us even in the midst of the storm to press on, right, as the bride of Christ. After the bridegroom parable, Jesus tells of the patch. And wine, Mark 2, verse 21, look there. No one sews a patch of untrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, as well as the skins. No new wine is put into fresh wineskins. We have every reason to party with the bridegroom because he's the new patch and the new wine. Okay? In fact... If we want to be part of the bridegroom's party, we must abandon our old garments and old wineskins, right? You can't party very well if you don't have the right attire on, okay? You know, you show up to a party and you may not be let in if you don't have the right clothes, okay? And you want access to the right wine, right? Some of you are like, hold on, hold on, all right? No, we want good wine, Okay? If you drink wine, you know what I'm talking about. We want good wine. We want access to the good wine. And that's a, right? We, we, so we can't show up with old wineskins, right? And old garments. Well, guess what? Jesus is the new fabric, right? And he's bringing a new message. He's bringing a new covenant. And this new gospel is not to be threaded. That's what it's saying there in that passage that we just read. This new, uh, Fabric here is not to be threaded into the old religion, right? Jesus the bridegroom, we see it here in the text. Jesus the patch, the new patch. Jesus the new wine. And to the religious leaders' disappointment and frustration, Jesus is not coming to integrate into their system, even if that system be Judaism. The patch, the wineskin. Right? Something that was once useful has come to an end of its usefulness. And if you attempt to use it with the new thing, you're going to ruin the whole thing. That's the paraphrase, I think, in part. Other places, like in Hebrews eight thirteen, says, "...by saying a new covenant," talking about Jesus' his new covenant, "...he has declared the first as obsolete. The way to God is not through the law, but through Christ." Jesus being the new wine cannot be poured into the skins of the Judaistic system. Neither can he be poured into, hear it, we need to hear it. Neither can he be poured into any other system. We could say we surrender ourselves, right, as new wineskins. We could say that this morning. That's something we could leave here confessing in response to this. Lord, we want to surrender ourselves as new wineskins because we want to be stretched to the max, as Jesus ferments and grows inside us, right? But if we keep our ideas, right? If we come to Christ and say, well, I like my ideas. I'm talking about our systems, right? We're jumping off of Pharisee systems, right? Because we don't work like that. We got our own systems, right? Right? we keep our ideas, if we keep our old customs, our traditional understanding of what is spiritual, if the wineskin of our life is made up of our old self, it will burst. If we are holding on to our old wineskins of what is familiar, here at church, of what is comfortable, of what is convenient, then we try to pour the new wine of Christ into that and our wineskin is made up of all these things with respect to our former life that we just don't really want to let go of. If that's what our wineskin looks like and we start to pour the new wine of Christ, it won't make it. If we try to go to the other parable, if we try to sew Jesus, the new fabric into our old clothes, it doesn't work, it tears. Salvation is available only through Jesus, and it can't be mixed with the Judaistic system or any other system for that matter. These parables represent both the beauty here it and the exclusivity of Christ's invitation. Think of that. What do you mean? Well, it's exclusive, meaning you have to get rid of your old garment. Praise God. And there's the beauty. There's the beauty. You have to get rid of your old garment. There's the beauty. You have to get rid of the old wineskin so you can receive fresh wine. Right? There's the beauty. I want to get rid of the old garment because it's tattered and jacked up. Right. Now that's where Jesus goes back to where we ended in 217 when when Jesus told these guys when he they got they complained that why are you hanging out with all these sinners? Why are you coming after and dining and, and whining and dining with the with the sinners? And he says, Look, I didn't come for those who are well, right? But I came for those who need a doctor. I came for those who, who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Right? I came to call those who see their old garment is tattered and they want a new righteous robe to wear. Right? They're not under some, some uh, illusion that they're all put together and they just need a, a little sprinkling of Christ. No, no, no. Man, I really think it would have been so easy. Had Jesus been more of a statesman, he could have worked it out so the Pharisees would have like buddied up to him and, you know, they could have made a deal where, you know, where the Pharisees, you know, are allowed to take some of what Jesus was offering but still hang on to the system. But that's not how it works, right? And, and Jesus lays this, lays this out there, right? And, and, and it causes this intense conflict that we see here in this passage. Let's summarize this part this way. The question posed by the image of the wedding feast and the two parables is not whether the disciples will, like sewing a new patch on an old garment or refilling a container, it's not as if they will make room for Jesus in their already full agendas and lives. That's not the issue. The question is whether they will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration. The question is whether they will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives. Keep in mind, the bridegroom is leaving, but he will continue to do his work in those who by faith become new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus in us. And that work includes trials... And sufferings of this life, if our wineskins are made up of old values, those trials and sufferings will come, and we won't grow, and we won't expand to take on more Christ-likeness. Instead, we'll burst, and that new wine of Christ just pours out, right? Next, we see, and finally, we have two points. This is our last point. We see the rest realized beginning in verse 23. The rest realized. The law is superseded by the promise. The promise is Christ, which is our Sabbath rest. See, the old system anticipates a rest that is realized in Christ. The conflict here in this sec- section hits its peak in terms of their plotting. That is, the religious leaders plotting. We see there in three six, right? They're plotting to kill him. They they don't want to let go of the system, do they? And we see the development beginning in 2, verse 1, right? Jesus eating with sinners, his disciples not fasting, and now here he's breaking the Sabbath law. And you've heard of the straw that breaks the camel's back, right? You guys have heard of that, right? Well, this is that straw, okay? The Sabbath was sacred. The Sabbath, Sabbath was sacred for the Jews, as it should have been. Why? Well, it was given to them by God. Right? God is the one that made the Sabbath. He worked six days and then he rested. And God went on from there to establish keeping the Sabbath as one of the Ten Commandments. In fact, let me read it to you. He says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11. I'll read. He says, remember the Sabbath day. This is God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but in the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy, The Sabbath was special, church. It was a gift given to Israel when they came out of Egypt. And over time, though, the Jews developed traditions that they used to guide them, to help them keep the Sabbath. In fact, there were 39 acts that were forbidden that they had come up with that were forbidden on the Sabbath. Now, as we just read and stated above there from our Exodus account, right? When the Sabbath was given, work was prohibited, but a good question that you would ask and I'm glad you did that what constitutes work, right? Now in other places if we study this in the scriptures other places we are told, right, what constitutes work? They couldn't gather fire, they couldn't gather fuel, they couldn't carry burdens and track, transact business. But the Jews, they went beyond this and made laws about how far you could travel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And Jesus comes into this picture right here in chapter 2, and he, he blows all that up and flagrantly violates their Sabbath traditions, right, and the Sabbath, right? See, with all their traditions that have been established around the Sabbath, the Sabbath that was supposed to be what? Rest, that's right, became a burden, that is exactly, it became very unrestful. To quote one, he says, man, it became a crushing burden, a symbol of galling religious bondage that had captured the nation. What? The Sabbath? The rest? So from the religious leader's perspective, when he is violating the Sabbath, right, Jesus says, how dare he? Who does he think he is? And in that sense, they're saying, man, war is declared. And for what? Look there with me at verse 23. What were they doing? On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what? Because they were picking heads of grain. They were eating. Why are they doing what is not, law, uh, what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So what were his disciples? They were going through the field. It, it was, uh, the issue isn't that they were stealing. That was allowed. In that culture, at that time, if you're passing through someone's grain field, you can pick something and eat it. It wasn't stealing. That wasn't the issue. But by picking the grain, technically, they were violating the Sabbath. Why? Because that was considered work. Right. So Mark here points to the story of David. It's a Roman audit. That's what he does next in our text. He points in in the response, he, he points to the story of David. Right? The, Jesus gave a, a, full, a, a much fuller response than this, but Mark highlights uh, the response in reference to David. The Roman audience would have known David as a great warrior, a great king. So he leaves out other parts of Jesus' response. And he says there in verse 25, right? Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God at the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, And he also gave some to his companions, and he told them, Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And so that's what, he's saying, look, David did this, right? And he says, you look at that, but then he points to himself, 28. So then the son of man... Is Lord even of the Sabbath? Even of the Sabbath, right? See, the law was supposed to be restful. It was supposed to point to Christ. It became very right, unrestful. It became burdensome. These laws they had created around the seventh Sabbath even perverted, or excuse me, it prevented them from doing good. It, it even prevented them from doing good. And that's something. We see that in the section beginning in chapter 3, 1. Right? You look there and we read that. They are watching. That is, the religious leaders are watching in order, it says there, look at the passage, in order to accuse him to see, verse 2, to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. They can see it coming and they can't wait to catch him, to get him. Sure enough, he goes into the synagogue and what does he do? He heals the guy. Jesus knows they're watching. And you get the sense that's exactly why he healed the guy. To show what? To show that he is, in fact, the Lord of the Sabbath. But they don't understand, those watching, right, these religious leaders don't understand the purpose of the Sabbath. Just like they didn't understand the purpose of fasting. They didn't know that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And in this, he confronts their ignorant and hard hearts by modeling the sabbath right before their eyes because he is the sabbath right he is the sabbath rest but they miss miss it and he asked them there in the text what should have been a very simple question especially in his exposition in regarding david he asked them in verse four is it lawful to do good on the sabbath or to do evil to save a life or to kill it but they were silent weren't they and after looking around at them with anger it says there verse five. He's angry. Jesus is angry. This like here is the like he established right the God in heaven established the pre-incarnate Christ with God the Father established Sabbath as the day of rest. He established, it was his he made it for man it was it was a shadow of things to come it was supposed to point to the coming of Christ and now the Sabbath rest right of all this time of all this waiting is right before their very eyes and he is trying to, to bring rest he's showing healing this man with a shriveled hand bringing that man rest and, and the Sabbath rest is among them, and they can't see it. Of course, he is angry. It says he is angry because he sees the hardness of their hearts. Sadly, this moment it highlights their unbelief. Their hard hearts don't soften, and it angers and saddens Jesus. And we see there in verse six that the Pharisees go on from there to make an alliance with the Herodians, an alliance that came why because of their because they didn't want anything to do with the Herodians and the Pharisees. They weren't friends. Okay. They weren't friends, right? But their common d- hatred, right, fear, disgust with Jesus brought them together. And so they schemed with the Herodians and came up with a plan how they could kill them before the whole system crashed. That's interesting. Mark, throughout the gospel, highlights several points of irony, uh, see it here. Here the authorities, the religious authorities deny Jesus the right to do good on the Sabbath while they conspire to do evil. Huh. There are some even today who say we need to get back to the Jewish feast because there's a spiritual benefit that we are missing. I would argue this text, among others, Jesus shatters this argument. And his uncompromising response is what caused there to be such hostility towards him. He is pointing to himself. They are pointing to the Sabbath. (laughs) And they're missing it. A few years back, I remember around this time of year, I had someone trying to convince me that we needed to start practicing the various Jewish feasts. Right With springtime coming... Uh, the Passover's around the corner, but there are other feasts as well, like unleavened bread and the first feast of first fruits and the feast of weeks, right? And here, church is why if you if you started to adopt this, there's like a tradition. There's like a, I don't know. I, I've seen it around and heard of it for several years now, but there's movement to say, yeah, we need to adopt these things. But I would, I'm saying that this is dangerous. Because Jesus is the fulfillment. And this is the message of Jesus in Mark 1.15. He says the time is fulfilled. See, what's all caught up in that statement, right? Well, the prophecies of Jesus are fulfilled. These festivals that I just mentioned are fulfilled. And there's no spiritual benefit in them. The substance is Christ. And so you can distract from that. Colossians 2.16 it says there, therefore don't let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink or in the matter of festival or new moon or Sabbath day. These are what? It says a shadow of what has come, of what was to come. The substance, it says, there is Christ. You see, the law is complete. It, the law, the law covenant, is, as we read earlier, is obsolete, Hebrews 8:13. It has come to an end, Romans 10 4. Right, its goal has been reached. That's what I mean when it says it come to an end. Because there's some we could discuss more what it mean by that. But I would take that to mean that it's come to an end means the goal of it has been reached. Right, and his name is Jesus. And you might say, well, why do we keep preaching through the Old Testament? Why not just stay in the New Testament? Because if we want to understand, right, if we want church to walk in faith and live in anticipation for the bridegroom's return, we have to understand and embrace that which points to the bridegroom, right? Yeah, we are no longer under the Old Testament law structure. We are now under the law of Christ. Right? It's not that the law is gone, but it doesn't continue in the same way. It's now the law of Christ. And the New Testament helps us properly apply the Old Testament under the new system, which is the system of Christ. Now we could teach on this last 30 seconds of what I just said for a long time. <laughs> okay, There may be questions raised. I encourage you to work those out. All right, Come talk to me about them. As Colossians says though, here's what we're taking. These things are a shadow. Jesus is the reality. Let's go back there. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. The Sabbath was made for the Sabbath was made by God for man to give us rest and relief from our labors. The gospel appears in person. Who's his name? Jesus. The gospel appears in person to give us what? Ultimate rest. That's why it's a shadow, the Sabbath's shadow. The law was a system of intense labor and intense sa- sacrifice. In this system, the Jews worked very hard to make themselves right before God, and they labored to obey law covenant. Of course, as sinners, they wouldn't keep the law perfectly. They would fail, and God provided a system of sacrifice and offering that they could repeatedly make to restore fellowship. Think of the intensity of that. Think of the burden of that, right? That this was the temporary, though, Hebrews tells us. And the sacrifices that were repeated, it says, these sacrifices and this work and this law was repeated endlessly year after year. But but it could never make anyone perfect. All of it was anticipation for the perfect sacrifice that could make us perfect, thereby giving us rest. All these sacrifices they were part of the old Judaistic system and all the offerings were done in anticipation for the one final sacrifice that Jesus would make, his very self on the cross. Hebrews 10, 12 says, but this man... Talking about Christ, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Priest, think of it, and we're we're closing up here, all right but priests would offer sacrifices that, i mean think of the, the all the blood spilt, will you like and all the work and all the 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 money, honestly, that went in, like like all the labor and all the sacrifice, the economic sacrifice that went into all of these keeping, these feasts and these sacrifices and and everything. Think of it, right? Day after day, the priest would make these sacrifices that never take away sin. Jesus comes and he offers one sacrifice there on the cross. Then what did he do? He sat down and he rested. Right? Because of this, we abandon the system of works. We abandon the system that can't justify. Only Jesus can justify. He comes and provides us with the ultimate rest that the Sabbath was a shadow of. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath because he satisfies the requirements of the law. And because of this, we, church, can have true rest. It's important for us to try to wrap our hearts and minds around this as we appreciate him more. The law was not restful. Trying to uh, make yourself right before God, if that's the business you're in right now, you can't get it done. Right? And if you show up here this morning and find that you are not at rest, that you have not known the Sabbath rest of Christ, right, that is likely. Why? It's because you are just trying to do it on your own. And your heart is not going to be at peace. Right, Your, your soul is not going to be at rest when you feel like, man, you, you are looking at a God that is just always displeased with you. Right? Because you can't quite get it done. Here's the, here's the good You can't get it done. Right? You can't surrender to the one that can provide you the rest, the true rest that you're looking for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father... There's so much here in this passage. thank you for it. Help us to draw near and experience you as our Sabbath rest. you It's so easy I know for me to 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 get sidetracked and chase after other things and and we create even here in in your church like a new set of standards that that cause us to maybe even feel more qualified and close to you, but we're deceived. We, we get to chasing after things other than you. And so God, I just ask that simply that you help us to, to run after you, that you would be the focus of our attention, that you would be uh, the love of our life, that you would be that bridegroom, that we are running after And anticipating your return. And that this would stir us. May this stir us. Stir us in our passions for you. Stir us in obedience. Equip us through this to be faithful followers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.